I'm Dr. Jackie Fenton, and this is Your Health Matters. On this week's episode, I interview Heather Kaplan, a dietitian. I used to struggle with food. Uh, from a really young age, I was a super picky eater, basically only eating chicken nuggets and pizza until I was 23 years old. Uh, I started going outside of my realm of what I was comfortable with around that age. And then I went to physical therapy school, and because I was so stressed out, I basically ate Doritos, quesadillas, Reese's, like, all the time. And I was really struggling with with my relationship with food, um, just being stressed out about the process of cooking and, and actually enjoying food, right? And after I graduated from PT school, that's when I... Uh, took over my my business, uh, Bright Heart Yoga Studio, and I got even more stressed out and was eating Chick-fil-A all the time. And I, I was feeling low energy. I was feeling like this is not really a, a sustainable way for me to, to continue on with my life. So um, I reached out to Heather, who um, we both went to Penn State, so we had mutual friends, and, and a friend recommended me to her to speak to her more about food. And that's where I began my journey with intuitive eating. And so that's what we discuss this podcast, intuitive eating. We talk about privilege a little bit and just a way to heal your relationship with food. So without further ado, uh, listen in to this interview with Heather. All right. Hi, Heather. Hi, Jackie. Um, thanks for coming on my podcast, Your Health Matters. I'm super, super excited to have you here today. So happy to be here. Um, so just just to let, I gave a little background to um, our listeners before, before we start this interview. And though, um, I would just love to let them know that, again, that, um, you know, I know you through some friends from Penn State. So, you know, we are. We are. Um, so, uh, I just wanted to have you give a little bit, um, of background about who you are and, and how you got into, into nutrition. Yeah. Well, my journey into nutrition is not a unique story whatsoever in that I had really disordered eating habits and, uh, was really wrapped up in healthism, which we can talk about what that means, um, and realized that nutrition was something I could study, not just something I could obsess about on my own. So I studied it and became a registered dietitian. And throughout those five plus years, I realized how disordered a lot of uh, what we're taught to teach really is. And over the course of the last 11 or 12 years, I've like done a lot of soul searching and wondering like, was this the right profession for me or did I just study it? And like the timing was just such that, you know, I had access to that information when I felt like that's all I cared about. And that's not really all I care about anymore. But thankfully, as we will talk about today, there are many different ways to practice nutrition and many of which are more aligned with my values and my understandings of health as it is today. So I decided to stick around. Yeah, I love that. Um, I can completely relate with with physical therapy when I was practicing in the clinic. I was like, I don't know if this is how I want to be <laughs> practicing physical therapy. Yeah. This, is, this is not what I thought um, 
it was going to be because it ended up being a lot of uh, paperwork and 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 people coming in with with questions that were not really uh, related to physical therapy. (laughs) So, Yeah. yeah, I mean, I also relate to that. Like as soon as I got into nutrition counseling, which has been the majority of my career up to this point, like every job I've had has had some element of counseling. And I'm like, this is, I can't just come in here and start talking about nutrition science. Like there is so much more to what's going on here. And that list is really different depending on who you're talking to. And we were in no way equipped to actually counsel people. We were equipped and taught to treat and diagnose a problem and then just provide a fix and move on. And that's not what works for anybody. No, it doesn't. Because I think part of it is like people don't need to be fixed as part of the issue. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like people don't need their, – they're perfect the way they are. And um, there's beliefs that are there that need to be dismantled. And uh, for me in particular with PT, I didn't really start to get that until I did a certification in like uh, pain science where I learned how to educate p- their people on their pain. And it was basically like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy with a lean towards PT, but you have to change the thought process before you can change the behavior. But there was no way in PT school that we had time to learn all that. Yeah. Like, like it makes sense to me that our education is the way that it is to some extent. I do still think there are there's a lot of room for improvement and I can sit here and criticize it all day. But, um, you know, there are things that make sense to me. And then you get out in the working world and hopefully you have great mentors and supervisors and bosses who can help shape you and support you into becoming a practitioner that aligns with your values. But coming right into the field, it takes a long time to realize that, but you will quickly realize like I was not equipped to deal with some of the cases that come across my radar because what we're taught is just nutrition science, like the dietary guidelines, what those mean, how they were formed, uh, nutrition policy, and then like, okay, now go fix all the people. And that's just, I don't know. There's a lot, a lot of problems in that system. You're like, okay, cool. Let me get out my wand. Yeah. It'd be great. Yeah. Um, okay, so can you can you share a little bit more about healthism? Yes. What you kind of shared about? Yes. So healthism is sort of a system of beliefs that keep people stuck in this idea that we all kind of have to be striving towards like perfect health and that we have some moral obligation to be this pinnacle of health. Um, it's a term that was originally coined, I think, in like the 80s by Robert Crawford. Um, and I think he defined it as a preoccupation with personal health as a primary focus for the definition of achievement and well-being. I just looked that up. I didn't memorize it. (laughs) Um, So again, just sort of this obsession with health, this preoccupation with achieving health and achieving well-being. And that, that is the language of diet culture, right? Like if you just do these things and you follow these rules, you too can achieve the pinnacle of health and well-being. And diet culture presents in many different ways, often a sheep in wolf's clothing or wolf in sheep's clothing or whatever the saying is. Like it can be disguised any way you want it to be. And I think that a lot of our healthcare education, and I don't know if you felt this way in your studies for physical therapy as well, but so much of our health education is drenched in healthism, in this narrative of people can fix themselves if we just focus on the things that are wrong with them. Like everyone can achieve this one 
ideal of health, this one picture of health. And that ranges from, you know, lab values to mental health, to physical health, to physical appearance. And a lot of those standards are based in racism and eugenics, and they're problematic every which way you look at them. And yet there haven't been really major challenges to that system of education or that system of beliefs. And so they persist. And we have healthcare practices, healthcare policies, healthcare education, healthcare providers who basically ascribe to healthism, whether they realize that or not sometimes. And that transfers to, I think, sometimes unethical care that we're providing to patients, clients, consumers, whomever might be in your community. Yeah, I totally get that. And I, um, like for me, I had to really look at my beliefs, not only from what I got as a physical therapist, but what I got from my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly with my my dad, he, um, he, you know, would would diet on and off, right? Being like, this is this is the best food for me, and I shouldn't be eating this cookie right now. Don't look at me eating this cookie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then just kind of getting into exercise to have. Um, a, a certain body type rather than to exercise for his well-being, like mentally improving your mood, you know, improving your energy, your sleep, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so so I had to look at my beliefs when I was working with patients and also, also working with uh, people at my yoga studio, how, um, how my thought process of exercise might be impacting them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we definitely bring those belief systems and our own lived experiences into every client interaction or just like human interaction, right? Right. Like um, whether we're working with that person or not, um, it takes a lot to kind of unlearn what was normalized for us, what, what examples we saw growing up, and also to extend a lot of compassion to the people in our lives who gave us those examples because I choose to believe that like they were doing the best they could with what they had. And you and I grow up, grew up mostly like late eighties and nineties. And like there was rampant diet culture at the time. I mean, it's still rampant, but it was kind of taking on new forms and it was newly accessible thanks to new forms of media. And, you know, we had like the height of our fear of fat in food and like, it makes sense that those are the things that we saw in action in our families because they didn't have a lot else to work with. And, you know, like they thought they were doing the best they could. And I want to believe that, you know, but that is what we come into these professions with. Like I said, I came into college as an 18 year old with a lot of disordered eating habits. And I had already been on a few diets that I put myself on, you know, and like all of those things influence how we think about how we like, put what we're learning into context. And so for a while it makes sense. And then after a few years for me, I was like, what I'm being taught to teach clients and patients looks very, very similar to what I now recognize as really disordered eating habits and really disordered eating behaviors and really disordered body image thoughts. So there seems like a disconnect here. (laughs) Like I can't I like I knew very early in my career, like I can't go into a client session and tell them to weigh food or to measure everything or to track everything. Like those are disordered behaviors. They can, 
I say this like with so much caution, like in some cases, maybe that can be helpful to help folks see whether they're eating enough, but those certainly don't have to be behaviors that we take on for the rest of our lives, you know? Um, so yeah, it just sort of like when you reach a point where you realize like, okay, these are my lived experiences with diet culture and healthism. This is the culture that we live in. And this is what I was also taught as a healthcare provider. And yet it's okay to challenge those things and to start looking at them differently when we expand our worldview and we are exposed to different lived experiences and we realize how harmful a lot of these norms really are. Yeah, I think my my realization of when it was not okay anymore is when I started having some of my yoga students and some of my patients come like talk to me about health and nutrition and they're like, I want your body. Mm. And I'd be like, well, first off, I would think, well, I don't eat the healthiest, quote unquote, whatever that meant at the time, right? Yeah. And um, and I don't re- – like, this is genetics. I don't necessarily do anything yeah. <laughs> in particular to look uh, the way I look. So I started questioning my beliefs and what I had learned about health and nutrition because, because people were trying to be like me, and that feels weird because – I want people to be like them, not like me, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've said this over and over, like through hot takes on social media, but I'm like, to every dietitian, person in the fitness world, person in the wellness world, per- person in the healthcare world, your body is not your business card. Your body is something that exists in the way that it does because of genetics, systems of oppression that you are or are not affected by, or that do or don't give you power. And a small percentage of that is our behaviors, but our behaviors are what we have access to. So do we have a lot of control over that? Sometimes no. Every time I've posted about this and even mentioned the concept of thin privilege or thin power, which very much exists, by the way, um, inevitably there are many practitioners who are like, they chime in and they're like, I earned this body. I deserve it. I deserve that privilege. And we don't have time today to get into how problematic (laughs) that worldview is. (laughs) Um, But that is what diet culture really tries to make us believe, again, is that you have 100% control over this and you can achieve this ideal, implying also you can achieve this power and everyone should want this power, right? Um, so I, again, I like extend so much compassion to folks who find themselves in that brain space and I completely understand how we get there. And hopefully as we continue to have conversations like this and we have more and more providers who try to expand that worldview, try to expand that lens finder and are like, oh, there's a lot of problems here with how we approach health currently within weight-centric practices. Um, and we could do a lot better. Yeah. Yes, we can do a lot better. (laughs) Um, So Heather, can you talk about uh, what you teach people now um, and what what you've kind of shifted uh, your thinking around nutrition and and what you share with people now around it? Yeah. So I identify as an anti-diet or a non-diet practitioner. I use those terms interchangeably. Some people feel differently about them. But in any case, it is essentially 
providing nutrition education or nutrition counseling, or sometimes I call it nutrition therapy, through a lens of non-diet practices and weight-inclusive practices. And at the foundation of that is intuitive eating, which is probably what most folks listening have actually heard of. Um, You know, those other terms maybe are kind of more practitioner terms than consumer terms, but um, intuitive eating is a framework that was authored and outlined by two registered dietitians originally in the mid-90s, which is super wild when we think about what was going on in the mid-90s, but uh, like just in terms of our culture and our nutrition education, um, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Rash are the authors of the original book, and they've written four editions of the book. So the most recent edition came out last year in 2020, and the book has changed a lot, which I love having that example of practitioners who 25 years ago thought to challenge the status quo and to provide more ethical care to their clients. They're both in private practice and they have been for like three decades. Um, but you can also look at that very first book and there are chapters on weight loss and there's chapters on how intuitive eating works for weight management because that's what they had. You know, those were the tools they were working with at the time. Um, the concepts and the way that they write about them have changed a lot over the years as they have evolved as practitioners and as we've all learned more about weight inclusive practices and the concepts of health at every size, et cetera. So I would recommend starting with the fourth book (laughs) or the fourth edition if you haven't read the book. Um, but essentially, you know, practicing as a non-diet weight inclusive dietitian, is sort of built on that foundation that they provided 25 years ago, in addition to movements that have been in place for many decades around fat acceptance and quote unquote body positivity, which has kind of a new connotation these days. But um, initially in like the 60s and 70s, these were movements that were started by fat people who were like, we're tired of this discrimination. We're tired of this stigma. It doesn't make sense. And we're going to start fighting for more respectful care and representation. And I mean, sadly, if you look kind of 50 years down the road to today, we've not made a ton of progress in those spaces, but there has been some, so it's not totally hopeless. Yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely still very rampant and I still have to, you know, because of the beliefs that I grew up with, I still have to like check myself, um, on judgment, like if I'm being honest, you yeah, know. No, like- I think I think that's really important to acknowledge because I feel the same way. And I've been in this kind of non-diet world for about five or six years now. So even five and six years in, like I still find there are things that I'm unlearning and I still find that there are biases that I hold that I have to continually examine and check and be aware of. Um, and I think you and I are both providers who hold a lot of unearned privileges. So not just thin or straight sized body privilege, but white privilege and we're hetero and we're financially stable and we're cisgender, like all of those things add up. You know, we have very different lived experiences and then we have like almost the privilege of being able to say like, I'm going to participate in diet culture by choice. You know, and like, is that a great experience? No, but I can look at my own lived experience and say that like my needs were met. So it was okay for me to consider dieting because I didn't feel threatened in any other way, you know? Um, And then for some folks, for some folks, dieting feels like dieting and the pursuit of weight loss feels like a step towards safety, towards 
attaining thin privilege or thin power, towards assimilating and towards associating with more of our cultural norms. So it's a complicated conversation. <laughs> like there's so many different ways that we could look at this, but um, to answer your question in the work that I do, like I have just found this, like the only way that I could continue practicing as a dietitian was to better understand these frameworks and know that I went into client sessions thinking more like a therapist, not practicing like a therapist, but thinking more like a therapist in that I'm here to support my clients and I'm here to bring whatever nutrition science knowledge I have that might be helpful to them depending on their values and what they want to work on. But I'm not coming into a session being like, here's what I know and here's what I'm going to teach you and your goals are irrelevant. Just listen to me. <laughs> you know. And I'm not saying that weight-centric providers do that, but the again, like the way we're taught is to diagnose and treat instead of listen and support. And there can be a way that those things coexist in some way. And I think that's important with certain conditions, but really like the emphasis should be on that listen and support because we come into each session having no idea what that person's lived experiences are, what's important to them, what's valuable to them and how we could help. And so like coming in, trying to remove assumptions, trying to acknowledge bias and put it off to the side because we all have it. We just have to work on addressing it um, and just learning to listen and support. And that's not easy, but I think it's so important. Yeah, I, re I really appreciate that a lot, Heather, because I, I feel like as healthcare providers and as human beings, we could all listen better. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> and just, um, I mean, I have to catch myself because again, in PT, I was taught to fix people, right? And mm -hmm. so I have to catch myself that support doesn't mean fixing. It means meeting people exactly where they are. Right. And um, most people, um, and this is what I love about intuitive eating, is that most people, when they're really connected to what they need, they already uh, can create their own advice. And so by really listening, um, I think it allows us to support them in, in them coming forward with what they actually want to do right. and create for their plan. Right. And bringing an awareness to what those needs are, like coming into a session with like, okay, do you have access to food? Do you have enough food? Have you had experiences of food insecurity? Are you feeling stigmatized or oppressed in other ways? Like, are those all within scope for a dietitian? I think so, because if those needs aren't being met, like we have no business being like, well, let's talk about vegetables and how many you should eat every day. Like what? <laughs> so, like, that is so irrelevant to the big picture, you know? And like, even if those needs are being met, like, do we really need to talk about how many servings of vegetables folks are eating every day? Probably not. It's probably yeah. not the most important thing in their life. Right. hundred <laughs> percent. Um, okay. So Heather, if, if people want to know like some steps in intuitive eating, how to start, start bringing that more into their life, um, what are, what are some of your suggestions to get started with this? Yeah, I think there are so many different ways you could go about it. I think the, the thing I want to start with for most people is helping them kind of take, take down the walls of the box or like the sides of the box that we tend to put nutrition information into because we are so used to getting rules and guidelines and best practices and 
um, et cetera, et cetera. Like things that place basically restrictions on what we can or should be eating. And then a process that we're working through that's like, well, if I just do all of these things, I will be eating healthy. Like we look for really objective ways to define that. And we try to squeeze them into boxes so that it feels nice and safe and comfortable. And I think the challenge with getting back to intuitive eating, so whether you think of intuitive eating as these 10 principles that are outlined in the book by Evelyn and Elise, or if you think of intuitive eating as a natural innate ability that we all have, which is to eat intuitively, um, either way, making sure that you check that tendency to put it into the box and to say, okay, well, if I'm eating intuitively, then I'm following all 10 guidelines perfectly. And then I can do it right versus wrong. Um, the authors are always very clear in acknowledging like there's no one right way to do this. There's no wrong way to do this. It's a process of unlearning and getting back into a place where you feel like you can eat intuitively. And there are always folks who say, well, what if I have celiac disease and I really want a gluten pizza? And would I be eating intuitively if I honored that craving? Um, that's a really random example, but like a very specific thing where like this is a restriction I do have because of a condition or an allergy or whatever. Um, and we want to honor that. Like there can be so many different ways that intuitive eating looks for each person. So again, like the tendency is to place these ideas in, into a box so that they are nice and objective and we can decide whether we're doing it right or wrong. But really, it's meant to be more of a process of unlearning and relearning how to honor what your body needs, how to respect what your body needs, how to bring nutrition into the conversation when relevant and applicable, but that doesn't have to mean every single day or every meal, um, and figuring out what it means to eat without a lot of these guidelines and restrictions to try and put some trust back into our bodies and into our intuition, our mind, our gut, and trust that we as humans with access to food and security are able to feed ourselves. That is something we are capable of doing. But because of the culture that many of us have grown up in, continue to live in, we are sort of taught to believe that we can't trust ourselves or our bodies and we should be constantly trying to manipulate them and to follow the rules so that they quote unquote, achieve health and well-being. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that totally makes sense. I think um, like just two things that come to mind when I'm, when I'm thinking about this. So when I started um, uh, getting ready to feed my son, like moving from breastfeeding to, to solid foods and whatnot, um, I was very worried because as a kid, I like refused to eat pretty much anything besides like chicken nuggets and, and pizza. Um, and so I was really worried, uh, that, that was going to be the case for him. And, and not that, that that was bad. The problem was, was that I had a lot of anxiety around going out to eat, making sure that the food that I liked was on the menu before we went out to eat. And so it was just like a lot of anxiety. Then I, then I felt bad because I was making friends change plans because they, there wasn't food there that I liked or that I was willing to try. Yeah. Um, so I was very much like, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want that for my, for my kiddos. So how do I like, uh, change that? But one of the, one of the, uh, Instagram handles that I follow feeding littles did yeah. a whole thing on like, on, uh, 
healthy versus not healthy. And they used a strawberry as an example. And for some people, strawberry is quote unquote, not healthy, right? Because it's could they could be allergic to it. Right. Exactly. So, so it's more like, um, you know, I learned more to just like give him food. And if he eats it, great. If he doesn't, great. He he knows what he needs to do. And there might be sometimes he doesn't like the food and that's okay. Um, mm-hmm. Like I think for me growing up, my family and not my parents in particular, but like my extended family was always like, you need to eat what's in front of you. And then that would make me more stubborn and not want to try anything. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that's like an interesting belief that I had to kind of pull apart. Right. <laughs> or like, uh, as far, as far as like intuitive eating goes and like what I actually want to eat. Um, and I think the other interesting thing that I kind of got from what you were saying is that a lot of these beliefs that we have about our bodies uh, creates this distrust in ourselves mm-hmm. and being able to pick out things that we can eat. Right. Yeah. So I w- will come, I want to address both of those things. Um, just piggybacking off of that, the latter thing is that I can't tell you how many times in a client session I hear the words, well, I don't trust myself around or I don't trust myself with. And it's truly astounding how much the messages that we internalize around nutrition and health have dismantled this like core thing that we have in our body, which is to trust ourselves. Like our body is designed to keep us alive. <laughs> like what's not to trust, you know, like that is its one job is keeping us alive on this earth. Like what message did we get at what point that made us think like, I can't trust this vessel that keeps me alive. And instead I'm going to trust this piece of news on the morning TV shows or this article that came out in the newsletter that contradicts an article that came out six and a half months ago, or, you know, it's just like, why? I mean, I get it. Like I've been in there in that space. I completely understand and I empathize. And it's like, isn't that pretty wild that the thing we don't trust is our own body system that is designed to do nothing but keep us alive? That's crazy, you know? Um, so it is like, it's a, again, it's a lot of unlearning of like, oh, this message made me feel like I couldn't trust myself. This message made me feel unsafe in my own body, but it feels safe and comfortable to follow these rules. So I'm going to do that. And like, we all have the best intentions. We're trying to stay alive. And somehow we just lost sight of the fact that the one thing that does that for us is the thing we don't trust. Yeah. I mean, our, I mean, literally our body is, is designed to create homeostasis yeah, so that we like, can live our best life. That's all it does. <laughs> Every day, every second of every day is try to keep us alive and we don't trust it. It's like, but you trust this person on Instagram who told you to take 30 days off of this list of 25 foods and then gradually add them back in. Yeah, no, that totally, it totally makes sense. It doesn't make any (laughs) sense at all. None at all. But I understand, like I empathize. This is not to like point fingers at the people who have engaged with diet culture. Like we, I would say most of us have been there. I won't say we've all been there, but like Most of us have been there. We know how that feels. Feeding small humans is fascinating. Like (laughs) I, so before I have two kids um, and they're three and eight months. Um, And before I had to feed my oldest, 
I really thought like, okay, this has got to be pretty easy. Like I understand intuitive eating now. Um, you know, I've been doing this work for a few years. Like what could be so hard about feeding a kid? And I want him to eat intuitively and I want him to trust his preferences and his signals. And I know those will change and it'll be fine. And this could, this will be so easy as long as we don't try to have rules. <laughs> oh my God, it's not easy. And I noticed like things coming up for myself. Like there are, you know, as parents, like weird things happen in your brain and you have weird anxieties and weird stressors and weird things that you obsess over. And like, I think the hard thing for parent parenting challenges for me are that as soon as you get used to one thing, it changes especially with like very little humans because they are changing so quickly and they're learning so much and they're developing so rapidly and like you are just trying to keep up. And so like as soon as a thing feels normal to you, it will change and then you have to readjust completely. So like it is a lesson in like flexibility, humility and change. And when Casey was a baby and I, he would eat anything, like anything you put in front of him, if it was soft and not a choking hazard, like go for it. He'll eat it. No problems. Never rejected a food. I was like, this is so easy. Like you just give them different things and you don't make a big deal out of it and it's fine. And then they develop opinions about things. Like he's only three, right? And like for the past, I don't know, almost two years, I've been like, oh, this is, this is why it's hard. Like I follow feeding littles and I follow other accounts that like teach me how to feed my kid because I am not a pediatric intuitive eating specialist. <laughs> like that is not my specialty. Um, and you just never know, like each kid is so different. So like I can, that it is such a challenge. And like, if we're open to it and we allow ourselves to like relax a little bit, it can be a really fascinating learning process of like, wow. So if we overemphasize this thing, he doesn't want that thing. If we make this thing special, he wants that thing. You know, like we have to constantly catch our language, our emphasis on certain foods, the way we react at mealtimes or don't react at mealtimes, like how long they're going to be willing to sit there and eat. Like, I think he sh he's hungry when he's not hungry. And I think he should eat when he doesn't have much of an appetite. Like, it's just a constant reevaluation, which like if anyone's listening and they're thinking that sounds exhausting, it is exhausting. <laughs> it is. <laughs> like it totally is. But it's also really fascinating. And it can be alert that can be like part of our learning process too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean I think I think uh James's year and a half into into eating solids has taught me even more about myself and how um how best I can introduce new foods to myself. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Um, so I really, I really love that a lot. Yeah, it's, it's, in, and I, what also what is so interesting about intuitive eating for me in particular is as a type A person, like I'm always trying to achieve. So I'm like, yeah, I've achieved it. Right. And like, that's not what it is. Right. <laughs> totally, totally. And it feels that way with kids sometimes too, where it's like, oh, I figured out how to handle tantrums. We will never have tantrums again. It's not how that works. We have no. tantrums all the time. Like, do we know how to manage them sometimes? Yes, but like they're still going to happen, you know? So I right. think like this, the process of relearning how to eat intuitively and what that means for you and how it's going to look for you. And maybe it's not this picture of social media perfection that you see with some intuitive eating 
like influencers or practitioners or whatever they may be, like we have to learn that that's okay, that our, you know, our kids are going to eat differently than someone else's kids and we're going to eat differently than another human. And we have different needs and we have different ways that we respect our body and learn how to feed ourselves, et cetera. So we want this to be, again, a process that we can fit nicely into a box and it's just not that thing. It's it's very nonlinear. You're going to have days where you feel like, you didn't think about food that much and you were able to just feed yourself without a lot of emotion or like anxiety or guilt or whatever. And then you're going to have days where perhaps because of what's going on in your life or the world or with your kids or with a spouse or a partner or work or whatever, like emotions get in the way of things and they may cause us to eat differently on that day or to ignore a hunger cue or to eat past fullness. And then folks are like, oh, I'm doing it wrong. And it's like, no, you're doing just fine. You're being a human and you're letting yourself not be perfect. And that's part of the process. Yeah, 100%. And I think, um, yeah, because diet culture is so innate that it's like, oh, I ate past full, so therefore I can't eat as much tomorrow. And it's like, no, you still have to eat. Yeah. Like, and you can eat whatever you want, and your body's going to give you those signals, and it's fine. You don't have to try to manipulate it. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, I love that, Heather. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. Um, so bef- before we wrap up here, I just have I have two other questions for you. Um, so so the first question I have is is what is is your dream for healthcare? What does it look like? <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, Well, my dream is that in my lifetime, we have weight-inclusive practices in healthcare as the norm. Um, So part of my work is I created a business, a foundation, I don't even really know what to call it, (laughs) called um, Weight-Inclusive Nutrition and Dietetics. So for anyone listening who is in the nutrition and dietetic space or even like generally the healthcare space, um, we do trainings, we do regular webinars, we do symposiums. They're all virtual right now, of course, um, all geared towards more education and weight inclusive practices. Um, there's what we're trained in in healthcare is weight normative practices or weight centric practices where weight tends to be at the center of our conversations around health and achieving a quote unquote normal weight tends to be the pinnacle of health as many practitioners are taught to see it and understand it. And I would love to just obliterate that (laughs) and to create more respectful care for people whose bodies exist across the body spectrum to create a system in which we are not constantly trying to conform folks' bodies into one specific measurement or one range on the BMI, and that we no longer have systems that uphold oppression in the way that certain procedures or even certain access to care is limited based on someone's body size, because it's all unethical. And it's based on very little, if any, evidence almost all the time. So (laughs) I would love for that to just be like flipped on its head. Uh, I don't know if that will happen in my lifetime. I'm not like super optimistic that it will, but I do think we're kind of inching very, very slowly towards that with practitioners who have finally thought to like rethink the evidence that we do have and see the bias that exists in it and try to do things a little bit differently. Yeah, that's really great. I, I... Hope for that as well, because 
I dream just, big. I, yeah, no, I mean, but really, like, I just hope for people in general to just feel comfortable in their body as is and to not feel like they need to fit in a certain way. And as healthcare providers, we hold a lot of power in that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And yeah. I think it's a very misplaced power. Like that is not the power that anyone should hold is, you know, you can have this or you can't because of your body size. And because I decided, like I did a training, I'm currently doing a group for dietitians on anti-diet foundations and building it into their work. And we had a conversation yesterday about weight stigma and the impact on healthcare and health outcomes. And one of the things we talked about was delaying or avoiding care. Folks who have experienced weight stigma with their healthcare providers and dietitians 100% fall into that group um, will have a higher likelihood of delayed, canceled, or avoided appointments and preventative screenings, cancer screenings, annual physicals, et cetera. So even if there are health issues that may present early on, just like with any person in any body, we're not catching them because those folks don't feel comfortable going into their provider's office because they have experienced stigma and oppression and they have experienced a power dynamic where they were not allowed to advocate for themselves or to even speak up and say like, I'm actually not interested in weight loss. Like, thanks, but no thanks. I'm here for something entirely different. Um, so I, and then there were two people shared a story that's, um, this is what made me think of it when you said that is, They had a family member who needed a knee surgery, and one surgeon said they wouldn't give them the knee surgery until their BMI was below a certain number, Um, and that evidence says it's not safe to do it over that BMI number, blah, 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 blah. This person went to a different surgeon in the same city who said, okay, when would you like to schedule the surgery? Yeah. This is not black and white. Like, it is implicit bias. And it's unethical care saying you can't do it until your weight matches this number because that's what the evidence says. It's not what the evidence says. Actually, it's how you interpreted that evidence and then decided to withhold care from someone who was asking for it. Yeah. Super not great on so many. (laughs) It's like, ah. So yeah, big dream for healthcare. Don't know if we'll see it in our lifetime, but that doesn't stop me from trying. Yeah, I love it. And so, Heather, what would you recommend then if somebody wanted to work with a dietitian? Um, what what kind of things should they look for or steer clear of? <laughs> oh, well, I think, you know, the option is yours. The decision is yours. So if, you, if there are certain things that are important to you and you're like not jiving with anything I'm saying, like, I wouldn't be the right dietitian for you. And that's okay. Um, If they are interested in working with a non-diet, intuitive eating aligned and health at every size aligned dietitian, some of the things you would want to look for to make sure that that's really the experience that you're getting is a dietitian who um, maybe uses those terms and how they describe their care, a dietitian who does not put weight loss services on their website. So what we're seeing more frequently right now is folks who are like, yeah, yeah, I I do intuitive eating counseling and I help you lose weight. And that's fine if that's a service they want to offer, but that is not aligned at all with the principles of intuitive eating and the guidelines of non-diet care. So 
there's some sort of conflict happening there. And if what you really want is a non-diet dietitian, I would say that's a little bit of a red flag. Um, or that's a pretty big red flag actually. Um, so looking for someone who uses that language, if you see kind of their posts on social media and are doing like a little research before you reach out, I would just say, look for someone who is not using binary language around food, like healthy or not healthy, good or bad, like right or wrong, you know, that understands like these things exist on a spectrum and we can't decide for someone else what's healthy or unhealthy. Um, and someone who, ascribes to weight inclusive practices, meaning again, like you're not going to see that weight loss service on their list of options. You might see weight inclusive services, meaning like they are not going to assume that your weight is a primary indicator of health or that it's something that needs to be changed. Um, And it's okay if you still feel sort of stuck with that and you want to have conversations about it. Like I have conversations with clients all the time about weight loss. It's not to say we can't bring that into the room. I think we sort of have to because it's, again, it's part of our culture and I can understand why it might be of importance to somebody. So happy to have those conversations um, just to help someone better understand like why weight inclusive practices are important and to me. And then they can decide like, does this feel like the right call or not? Um, those are really long <laughs> answer to your question, but I hope at least some of that was helpful. Yeah, no, I think that's super helpful. I mean, my goal here is to educate people and have people uh, either resonate. And if they don't, that's great. Then they know where to go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's my goal as a healthcare provider. <laughs> to give the education, you can choose if it sits with you or not. Take what you like and, okay. and what you don't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, thanks, Heather, for so much for taking the time to chat today. Um, where can people find you if they, if they want to learn more about intuitive eating and just your thoughts on, on the diet culture. Yeah. So my website is heatherkaplan.com. That's Kaplan with a C, not a K. Um, I'm at Heather DCRD on Instagram. And then for anyone listening who is in the healthcare space or nutrition and dietetic space or both, um, my podcast is RD Real Talk and we talk about these things at length. Um, and it's mostly provider to provider conversations, but certainly anyone who's curious, uh, I hope there are some, some helpful takeaways for you as well. Awesome. Um, I'll put all of that, I'll link that all below so people can people can find you. So um, thank you so much again, Heather. This was super insightful for me as usual. Um, And yeah, uh, thanks for hanging. Thanks for having me. It was so great to have Heather on the podcast this week. I really hope that you got something out of it for your nutrition and your relationship with food. Please subscribe to Your Health Matters so that you can get the latest episode as soon as it comes out every Thursday. You can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Jackie Fenton to stay up to date about all things movement, pain, and healthcare. And I'm excited to chat with you next week. Have a great week.